Hey everyone, my name is Anthony Burton and welcome to Talk Talks. Today's episode features a conversation between Helen Walsh of Diaspora Dialogues and author Joyce Wayne. It was recorded live at the Diaspora Dialogues offices and uh, Helen's here for some more introductions. Hope you enjoy. I'm Helen Walsh, president of Diaspora Dialogues and publisher of Talk Magazine. Joining me in the studio today for our podcast series interviewing DD alumni on their newly published novels is Joyce Wayne, whose fascinating new novel, Last Night of the World, was published this month with Mosaic Press. Joyce is an award-winning literary journalist, a former editor at Quill Inquire, and the author of the historical novel, The Cook's Temptation, which was also published by Mosaic Press in 2013. Last Night of the World weaves a story of impossible choices told by real-life Soviet agent Frida Linton. She and other intriguing characters whose actions unleashed the Cold War fight for their survival in the cloak-and-daggle atmosphere of World War II. Mainly set in Ottawa, a Soviet espionage cell attempts to steal the plans for the atomic bomb from the Americans. The characters include Igor Gushenko, the cipher clerk who stole top-secret cables from the Soviet embassy and defected, Fred Rose, the first and only elected member of the Canadian Communist Party to the House of Commons, and John Grierson, the founding director of the National Film Board and the master British double agent of the Cold War, Kim Philby. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you for having me here. You participated in Diaspora Dialogue's short-form mentoring program a few years ago, working on a story called When Bell Walked Along Spadina. In the afterword to this fascinating new novel, you speak of the impact of your father's stories of the Red Cavalry riding into the village in Belarus where he lived as a child, and subsequently his emigration to Canada and involvement with the Communist Party in Toronto. Last Night of the World returns to the same time period and indeed to some of the same characters as when Bell walked along Spadina. Tell us a little bit about your father's stories and the lasting impact they've had on what you've chosen to write. They have lived with me most of my life. My father, um, as you point out, was born in a small little village called Nesvich on the Ukrainian-Russian border. And when, as I was growing up, he would literally sit me on his lap and tell me these stories about the Red Cavalry coming into the village and, um, you know, just tearing it down. It didn't matter if it was the right or the left. They didn't know if it was the whites or the reds, Bolsheviks at that time. They were just caught in the middle. It was a Jewish shtetl. And he told me these stories. And as I grew older and began to take an interest in history, he started filling in the blanks for me. Now, my father died quite a while ago in 1981. But these stories had just captured my imagination. And I just felt it was time to to write about them in fictionally, though. In When Bell Walked Down Spadina, Harry Vine, a character who's also very central to this novel, says to be a Jew is on the wrong side of the law, on the wrong side of the border. And indeed, the inevitability and impact of history winds itself through this novel, from pogroms to the liquidation of the ghettos, which is a horrific term that you use in this novel that I couldn't get out of my head, to the terrible treatment of Jews under Stalin. It's a tortured history that you explore in a very contextualized way in this novel. Characters like uh, Sybil Romanescu, Romanescu, or Fred Rose, who remained true believers in communism, to those uh, whose eyes were open to the horrors of Stalin, like Frida, our narrator, 
uh, or indeed your own father, as you write again in the afterwards, to characters who need an ism to order their lives, whether it's Judaism or it's communism. How did the weight of history, including personal and political, impact you as you were writing the novel? Well, these people were faced with impossible choices. If you can take your mind back to that 30-year, 31-year period between 1914 and 1945, living then was a hard thing if you were living anywhere between Berlin and Moscow. And of course, the renowned historian Timothy Snyder has written at great lengths in his book, Bloodlands, about that. And that's really what started me on this path. I, I had tried in some ways to push some of this from out of my mind because it's horrific. And um, I went on a vacation with my daughter in about seven years ago or six years ago, and I took Timothy Snyder's book with me, The Bloodlands. Well, I ruined our vacation for sure because as my daughter Hannah kept saying, at dinner all, everything you talked about had to do with the Ukrainian famine. And so not only did I ruin it for me, but for pretty well everyone else at our table, but I came home and I decided little by little, I just had to write about this. I did. And of course it impacted me because... There was no one in my father's family who remained in the village of Nesvich who survived. Those who came to Canada, as he did, or the United States, they thrived. But um, the ones in Nesvich were all killed on the same day in 1942. Uh, and they were just shot by the Nazis and thrown into a ravine. And my father would talk to me, and he was a pretty tough guy, my father, and he would cry. Yeah, he would actually cry. And so um, you just don't forget those things as a child or an adolescent. It sticks with you in your heart forever. It is an extraordinary book, Bloodlines. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And it, it moved me so much. And, of course, since then I've read everything by him and go to see him. And and he's got a new book coming out. <laughs> so Frida's brother, Simcha, uh, says near the end of the novel... When the world goes mad, to survive is not a crime. And elsewhere, the, no the narrator says that to judge somebody or a circumstance is the easiest thing in the world. Tell us a little bit about the process of writing morally ambiguous characters in a very fraught time. And what, if any, pressure you felt uh, anticipating what the reader's reactions might be? You know, I didn't plan to do it this way. I'll be perfectly honest, because I'm not an outliner. And um, I just wrote the book. But as I was writing the book, they're all morally ambiguous characters. All the three main characters, Frida, you know, the, the, the story is in the first person, so it's told in her voice, Frida Linton, who was in fact a real spy spying for the Soviets. And the other two main characters, her love interests, Harry Vine and Nikolai Zabotin, who was the military attache at the Soviet embassy during the Second World War. They're all compromised in their own way. They've all, they all, or Harry Vine certainly just moves from religious dogma really into communist dogma. Um, I guess as I wrote the book, I began to see that I could certainly not judge any of the characters in the book. Now, Simcha is the most complex because he was actually in, the, in a ghetto in Lotz, Poland 
is if you're living during that time and you try to put yourself in their place, which I did over and over again, what would I do? What would I do? I would be, I can't judge them because I don't know what I would do to be perfectly honest. And I think that they all did the best they could do. And I'm not trying to be, you know, Pollyanna-ish about this. They were living in probably one of the worst periods in human history and they survived. Let's talk a little bit about the role of women in, in these fraught times and in how they're used in these fraught times. To be made a whore, Frida says at one point, referring to what essentially the party determined her role would be, her contribution to the peace effort, not to the war effort, but to the peace effort. Required to sleep with dozens of men, uh, too many to remember, and almost none of whom, you, who she says in, in the book at one point, had information to, to essentially justify what she'd done. The only person that was really important enough was John Grierson, which is a very interesting thing for Canadians to read, because this is not something I knew much about him. Um, and towards the end of the novel, uh, again, around the John Gerson stuff, who at the time was the head of uh, the Wartime Information Bureau, later, of course, the National Film Board, fell in love with her. And then that's how she became, a, that's how he shared the uh, important information with it. How did you feel as a, as a woman writing this character and exploring what I assume was um, uh, historical research into how women were treated uh, as spies? Frida was a real spy, Frida Linton. She did work for the communists. That's often what women were asked to do. They were called honeypots. They're still called honeypots. She was a very strong-willed woman, but she wasn't a feminist. And I didn't make her one because it wouldn't have made sense for her to do that in the 1930s or the 1940s. So I did a lot of research about Frida and what her life might have been like. Um, I had to garner files. The files in, in Canada are closed. The last time anybody asked about them, I think it was Alan McEachern who stood up in the House of Commons and said, we lost them. So there's no way to get to the Fred Rose, Frida Linton, and the other 18 spies. There's no way. But MI6 and the FBI have great, huge files that are easy to get at, which I did uh, on Frida Linton primarily. And and I think that she was very alone. You know, someone asked me a question at a reading I did last week is, did she have any women friends? And the answer was no. It wasn't, that wasn't the life she she led. She was alone. She she was she had men who were telling her what to do. Most of what she did, as most of the spying for the Soviets was the same. The information they were sending back to Moscow to Moscow Center was pretty well useless. My father used to tell me this story. We could have gotten it out of any newspaper. It wasn't big information. They just made people do it. They made Fred Rose do it, who was an MP in the House of Commons. So most of the stuff that she would she would have sent back and she is sending back in the novel is not of a high level is not high level but the soviets were very intent on having these large spy rings in the united states and canada at the time she does move on to the big stuff to atomic information and that's when she of course gets in trouble and a few years later 
five, six, seven years later, the Rosenbergs were electrocuted, sent to the electric chair for that very same reason. She was not like Ethel Rosenberg. She wasn't married. She didn't have children. She was a beautiful woman. She was a femme fatale, really. And I think without being harsh on her, she she liked that role to a certain extent, although she knew her life was ruined in any moral sense. Yeah, she's a wonderfully complex character. I found her completely compelling. And and she's compelling because the ambiguity is not hidden. So she always, throughout the novel, she looks back with regret at having abandoned her family, at, I think was 14. She at times looks out at civilians or tourists and, and um, wishes for their simplicity of life and their naivete. But she also is super conscious of her own character that has driven her to make these choices. So she knows that her need for recognition was part of this. She takes, though she she wonders what her life would be like if she could just marry and have children, she also takes pleasure in her ability to seduce men and do her job. I mean, it is a it is um, an extraordinary, compelling character because of the complexity, because you don't make moral judgments about her during it. I don't make any moral judgments about her, I don't think, or any of the other characters, because I daren't do it uh, from... As, as the writer of the book. Their lives were too difficult. They were too harsh. Frida is a powerful person, and she knows it. She comes to know it. She's all alone in a strange country. She was born in a village of 4,000 people that lived according to strict Jewish Tal- Talmudic law. She comes to Canada. She can't speak a word of English. She's made fun of on the streets and taunted for being a greenhorn. She doesn't have one living relative here, right? So I think she she drifts into the Communist Party as many immigrants did during the 30s and 40s of all Finnish, Ukrainian, Italian. I mean, anyone who lived downtown at that time in downtown Toronto or in Montreal, there were many, many people who came from other countries who got involved in the Communist Party. And indeed, her landlord also not sells her into it, but but they all know what's what her future is mapped out before she is. They know, and they and and they watch her being groomed by the party by Tim Buck, the head of the Communist Party of Canada, long-term real head of the Communist Party of Canada, and even her own landlady, who is quite fond of, of Frida. She wants to help her, but she daren't, because these were people who lived by the rules. They may not have, they weren't hippies. They weren't the new left. They were the old left, right? And they, most of them came from religious backgrounds. And in my own family, my father wasn't the only communist that I knew. Most of my aunts and uncles were communists as well. So I would go, uh, they moved to the States. I would, you might like this story. I would go to the States, to LA with my parents when I was quite young, seven or eight years old. And there they would be. 
on the Venice beach having their CP, their Communist Party meetings. <laughs> this is this is for real. There they would be, these ladies with their house dresses and their Oxford shoes, you know, with the nylons rolled down over the ankles. And they would be having, no, nobody would go in the water because none of them could swim, of course. And they'd be having their picnics and talking about, about communism and Leninism. And very much topic then was Mao because it was a time when the Soviets were splitting with the Chinese Communist Party. I watched this as a kid over and over again. They were always in Yiddish. They spoke in Yiddish at these meetings. And I got these women. You have no idea, Helen, how tough they were. I mean, they were unbelievable. They were born in these little villages in Eastern Europe. They cooked. They had all these children. Most of them worked. A lot of their husbands were 'er ne'er-do-wells. My mother's father never had a job. It was my grandmother who had the chicken store in Kensington Market that I wrote about in the short story. Yeah. And, And that woman worked seven days a week, all day and night, literally, while my Joe, Marcus, my grandfather, went to the racetrack every day. There's a character in this book has a similar husband. Yes, there's the same kind of character. These people keep, you know, they. I can't let them out of my mind. I tried to write a Victorian novel <laughs> set in England, The Cook's Temptation. I tried really hard. I was going to leave this behind and let all that English-lit um, education that I had take me over, but I can't do it. I had to go back to these stories. Well, especially something with this meeting. So the Guzenko affair is an infamous period in Canadian history and widely considered the triggering event for the Cold War. Uh, From Belarus and Toronto in the 1920s to the unraveling of the Ottawa spy ring in in 1945 and 46, including the activities at Chalk River and and, uh, Los Alamos as part of the Manhattan Project and the race for the atomic bomb, the launch of the Cold War, and then, interestingly, the novel begins and ends in the forests around Chernobyl in 1988 after the infamous um, nuclear disaster. It's remarkable the scale of activities and people that you have in the book. So I'm curious about your research process for this and how long did it take you to write this novel? I started writing the novel as soon as I finished The Cook's Temptation. So that would have been in 2013. So it took me five years. I've been asked this question a lot and I did do a lot of research. But I also really trusted my intuition because I knew some of this stuff. I just knew it. Because you'd grown up with it. Because I'd grown up with it. So what I really did, to be honest, (laughs) is um, I wrote it and then I went back and checked it through research and historical records. If I made a mistake, I changed it. In other words, if it wasn't historically accurate, I changed it. But a lot of it didn't need to be changed because I heard it from the horse's mouth. I mean, these people at these these meetings that my father went to talked about this stuff all the time. You were living it during the... I was living it because, however odd this sounds, my parents pulled me out of school when I was in primary school for two months every winter because they liked to go to California. And my father would teach me one hour of English in the morning, which was the regular grade school Canadian teaching and one hour of Hebrew in the afternoon so that I I would keep up with what was going on in Hebrew school as well. 
So these two things, I had two hours a day with my dad, and he taught me all this stuff. So you, you preface the book with a quote from well-known writer and Putin critic, Masha Gessen. And the quote says, resistance can take the shape, the shape of insisting on making a choice, even when the choice is framed as one between unacceptable options. And Frida implicitly understands Harry Vine and Nikolai Zabotin and all the other people born into morally ambiguous places and times like she was. And she reserves her disgust for the ideologues, particularly the British ideologues, upper class ones recruited out of Cambridge and to a lesser extent Oxford, whose belief in communism is intellectual rather than born out of necessity. Can you comment on agency and choice in all of this? You know, I admire Masha Gessen so much, and I think her books are brilliant. Uh, This is the most difficult question for me to answer, because I think what happened to me as a person, as I watched Frida develop, as I watched all these characters develop in my own mind, is how ridiculous Stalinism was, and how hurtful it was. And yes, you can talk to people who say... And it's true, the East, the war was won on the Eastern Front. Would the war have won, been won without Stalingrad, the great patriotic war? I mean, people are going to really beat me up for this book because it is anti-Soviet communism and it's definitely anti-Stalinist. And so I, I just can't judge them. But one thing I can say is that in my own lifetime, having been involved in the left for ever, I guess. Um, I certainly have met a lot of academic Marxists. And after a while, that kind of wears thin. It wears thin. And so I make fun of them in the book, in a way, because I knew so many of them when I was at a university in Ottawa, and they would sit around and have these amazingly, you know, we should, when we, when we take the country and, and use these huge terms and terminology and they were going to storm parliament hill but well they were professors in the english department at carlton (laughs) so um you know here i am many years later i had to think about them and put them into my novel i couldn't resist i do find that scene where you have the labor day celebrations in 1945 just before the defection happens and it all begins to unravel and you have all of these great characters including these professors at the university who are you know smoking and saying when we look down and we take the country and and the frida the narrator says and how are you going to do that (laughs) well she's much more realistic like most immigrants are even to this day i mean if you go into any university class there's still a lot of marxist professors who have a lot to say about organizing and the country. But I think most people who come here from other countries are a bit more realistic. And they've also, so many people uh, came from, come from war-torn countries. And violence isn't a joke to them. It's it's realistic. So as I, I guess I just find it funny now. Humorous. <laughs> so let me ask you about the, the, Royal Commission and the government response. In the book, you make several critical references uh, to the response of the the Canadian government's handling of of the affair, essentially arguing, I would say, that the method of the arrest and the detainment 
because the use of the War Measures Act to let them detain um, Fred Rose and the, and the rest of them, and the calling of the Royal Commission that has a completely unpronounceable name, um, was undemocratic. And so in a book that has sympathy and not judgment for all kinds of people and systems and ambiguous situations, there is an unreservedly judgmental reaction to the Canadian government's response. So I'm just curious as to how would you have had the Canadian government respond at a time that, um, given the historical, given the historical realities of the time in which they they were responding, what I would say is this: that the Canadian response as a whole, there's a lot to write about. There, there was the Kellogg Tashro Commission, that Royal Commission, that in fact put about 14 of the spies in jail, including the MP Fred Rose, where he sat for six years, developed tuberculosis, and was then deported to Poland. He served the longest. He served the longest because he was an MP and he was sending secrets over to Moscow Center. He really was. You know, Igor Gazenko went to the Ottawa Journal the night before he defected, around midnight. Actually, tell the story of the defection. I mean, it's hard to imagine a, a government making such a debacle of a defection as the Canadian government did at the time. The government and the newspapers, because he first he went to the good old Ottawa Journal and the night desk editors, and he, he had 200 pages of stolen documents that he'd stuffed into a shirt, and he came with it to the Ottawa Journal, and the night desk editor thought he was a joker and sent him home. Well, he knew that if he got picked up by the GRU, the Soviet military police, it was the end for him. So he ended up in the morning very, very early going to the Department of Justice, which a former prime minister, or, um, a, a, a minister that was going to be a prime minister, Laurier, no, I'm making a mistake, sorry. Saint Laurent was the minister of justice at the time. He waited outside that building. No one would let him in. The guard wouldn't let him in. He thought he was joking, he was another fool. Finally, he gets in. Somehow, he screams and cries and beats his breast and he's waiting outside for a couple hours of Saint Laurent's office. Saint Laurent doesn't want to talk to him. He thinks he's a joker too. So a nice woman who was at the front desk took pity on him because he said if he didn't get in to talk to someone, he was going to commit suicide right there and then. He had a gun and actually that gun is in the spy museum in Washington, D.C. right now. Yeah. And and she sent him over to the Ottawa police, and they finally took it seriously. So the Ottawa City Police. The Ottawa City Police took him to the Ars, to the Mounties, and the Mounties took him. Then they called, took him to Camp X. Then they started calling important people in, and people started to realize this was not a joker. This was the real thing. So how could, in the long term, now this was it right after Labor Day, as I have it in the book, Nobody could believe what was in those passages. The next day, Mackenzie King, the Canadian Prime Minister, was on a plane to Washington. Truman said, you get down here. And I believe he went with Lester Pearson. We don't know. No one knows really what happened between September 1945 and February 1946. When Mysteriously, his, his journal has disappeared. Mysteriously, his journal has disappeared. But the Americans didn't do anything 
during that time. Then the night, just as I have it in the book, the night before they were picked up in February of 46, Drew Pearson, a very prominent journalist, made a broadcast about the spies and about the Gazenko defection. And the next night, they picked up the spies, sent them to a warehouse in, in Rockcliffe and without habeas corpus under the War Measures Act. And we all remember, or most of us remember the War Measures Act from the early 70s with Pierre Trudeau. I'm not exact. I know that they fumbled it a lot at the beginning. They started to take it seriously, but I think it's the old Canadian problem. They weren't prepared to move until they got orders from Britain or the United States. And I do have a, if I do, if I do judge anyone, it's the British spies, the Cambridge Five, because, because they were very involved in it. Donald McLean, the famous, one of the famous ones was, believe it or not, the first secretary to the British ambassador at the British Embassy in Washington during that period of time. He was also head of the Joint Commission on Nuclear Developments between Canada, the Brits, and the Americans. He knew everything. He was getting a lot of information from close Fuchs. They knew what was happening, but the Americans didn't want the Canadians to go forward with things until the story was released by Drew Pearson. I'm not really sure why. I think the reason is because the Soviets were our best friends all throughout the war. You know, not to forget there was a banner hanging from Eaton's in Montreal. The Soviet flag was hanging. They were our buddies. And I don't think those three governments wanted to dispel that feeling that the Soviets were our great buddies quite as quickly as you might have thought. As for the people, of course, their lives were totally destroyed, all of them, inclu including freedom. So also in the book, at one point, you say to devote one's life to a cause that turns out to be the opposite of what is preached is a horrible, horrendous thing. Do you see any current day equivalence to the geopolitics that surround us to that, that sentiment? I do, of course, because... When I was involved in the left, we didn't really know very much about what Stalinism had done yet. Now, I'm talking about the 70s and 80s. Now, think of the new left in Canada was still pretty taken with the Soviet Union. You know, it was a great place and all of that. As things turned out, it isn't a great place. And um, Stalinism was a terrible thing. And living under Soviet rule between Stalin and Gorbachev was no heaven, that's for sure. And so I think as we see the Soviet Union turning into Russia and the tactics that the Russians are using and Putin is using, both on his own people in an autocratic government that's, and, and a kleptocracy, I'd say, um, there are still quite a few people on the left who think that the Soviet Union didn't really interfere in the American election in 2016. And I find that almost impossible to believe. There's too much evidence to the contrary. So what are, what is the, what is, what's the, I'm writing an article for the Boston Review right now. What happens to voters in North America when, when all this information, this false information is put on their heads and they start, and they start voting for someone like Trump. It moves 
it moves countries to the right. And I don't like to see that. I also had this talk with the CIA agent. And he, I said to him, well, people in intelligence have always thought the threat was going to come from the left. But in fact, it's coming from the right. And he said, yeah, I agree with you. It is. And we never saw that. We never saw it. It's coming from the right. So I think it's a very scary thing because it's an old habit of Soviets slash Russians to be more concerned about nationalism, Russian nationalism, than they are about global politics. So the book ends, Joyce, with the words, today the restoration begins. That's a hopeful ending after, after some very dark moments in the book. Are you hopeful? I'm very hopeful and I'm very optimistic. I, I, I never give up hope. I, when I see what's going on in the world today, particularly in the United States, it's such a dark time. And I think it can lead so many of us to just cocoon in our houses, shut off the TV and cable news, stop reading, and just say, I don't want to know this. I don't want to be part of this. But that's what leads to more trouble. That's what leads to the desperate straits that these people are in. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that look at what happened in Toronto a couple days ago, that terrible murders really on the street. And look how our police responded with such dignity and such professionalism and the way people didn't rush to judgment about him. I didn't hear one person say he was a terrorist. And that makes me hopeful, very hopeful about Canada. Well, Joyce, you've created a really compelling book. I'm I'm delighted to have read it. I would uh, encourage everybody to read it. So please tell the people who are listening where they can get your book and where they can find out more information about your writing. You can buy the book on Amazon.ca or you can buy it on Amazon.com. I hear it comes faster from the American one than the Canadian one. It is available at Indigo Chapters online and certain Indigo Chapters stores. You can pretty well go to any bookstore and order it. If they don't have it in stock, they'll get it in stock really quickly. Or you can get in touch with me and I'll get some copies from my publisher and send it to you. It's my email address is joycewayne1 the num- the numeral at gmail.com and i'm happy to hear from anybody who's interested in the book if you want to buy it or not thank you so much joyce you're welcome thanks for having me thanks for listening to this episode of talk talks uh, remember to keep up to date with talk talks at talkmagazine.ca uh, check out all the other great content that we have there from writers across the city and uh, don't forget to follow us on twitter at talk writing that's t-o-k writing thanks